2: This week, I'm Scarlett Boom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Joe Wisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg Television. What'd you miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week, we spoke with Scott Galloway, a professor of marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business, a best-selling author and avid podcaster. Scott also has a new show on Vice TV, No Mercy, No Malice. He also has some big calls about the state of higher education in the US. So we spoke with Scott about how the pandemic is exposing and exasperating existing financial problems within higher ed. We began by asking Scott if we'll soon see a string of colleges collapsing.
3: Uh, Good to be with you, Charlotte. Yeah, so uh, if you just think about the waterfall here, if 10 to 20% of kids don't show up for school in the fall of the 4 million that we're expecting to be freshmen on campuses, uh, the Tier 1 schools are fine. They just reach into their waiting list. It's never been a better time to be on a waiting list to a Tier 1 school than the Tier 2 schools reach into their waiting list because more of their admittees are now going to Tier 1. But at some point you get to the kind of Tier 3 schools that don't have waiting lists To clear, and they're caught in a real financial struggle, and then the ones that face that shortfall in the fall and don't have some of the endowments that we hear about, and there's, you know, the 90% of of universities don't have uh, substantial endowments, those universities could be caught with a fixed cost base, uh, (laughs) and tenured employees, and all of a sudden be flipped upside down. You could see a lot of universities not only just not reopen, so you could see you could see hundreds, if not thousands, of universities not only not open in the fall, but you could see them never reopen again.
4: Yeah, I mean th- this is uh, going to be an interesting sort of shakeout here. I- I'm curious, Scott, though, for some of the top tier schools, uh, the ones that you know are, are tend to be more desirable. Obviously, a lot of the Ivy League schools, you know, the Stanfords, the Northwesterns uh, of the world out there. It- what are they going to have to offer, though, the students out there who are gonna be returning to a more of an online type of class environment. Given how expensive some of these tuitions are, uh, are they gonna still be able to offer, I guess, the same perceived value that they had offered before?
3: Oh, 100% no. This is, uh, part of the college experience is the experience part of it. But with your tier one universities, with your MIT's, your Boston colleges, your Berkeley's, your Michigan's, the real value is not in the education, it's not even in the experience, it's in the certification. Uh, we have, you know, the uncomfortable truth around America is we live in a modern-day caste system, and that casting is largely indicated by the university you graduate from. So even, even without the experience, even without the football games and the fall leaves, if you have the opportunity to certify your child, and you can afford to from a place like Stanford, you're going to continue to do that. But without the experience, without a world-class certification, there's going to be a whole swath of the populace that is going to say, I'm just not going to pay $58,000 for Zoom classes Mm -hmm. with a mediocre certification. So like everything here, there's a culling of the herd, and the ones that don't make it out of this are the weak, the ones that have very small endowments, the ones that don't have great brands, and all of a sudden have to offer an incredibly substandard experience.
2: All right, Scott, you're an expert on branding. Um, The tier one schools have incredible brands. And of course, big technology have incredible brands um, that have been tarnished a little bit of late, but still pretty notable brands. You see a future in which big tech and higher education will have to team up and partner up. What does that look like? How would it work?
3: Well, I think you're going to have tremendous cost pressure across the system, but in order to capture more or recapture most gro- more gross margin dollars. I think you'll see Tier 1 schools partner with big tech to expand their enrollments. You can envision a future where Berkeley or MIT don't welcome three or 6,000 freshmen to campus, but welcome 10,000 as their geography or their campus will no longer be the constraining factor because many or most of these classes will be delivered online. And I think big and small tech companies will help them to, to deliver and scale that, that process. So there'll be, like when big tech enters any category, there'll be a dispersion of value. A lot of people have access to education that didn't. But we're also going to see a lot of big winners and losers. I think it's only going to exacerbate, if you will, winners and the losers in higher ed. And quite frankly, there's going to be a loss of the traditional four-year wonderful campus experience might be relegated to just a small number of universities and the wealthy people. Who can afford to send right. their kids there, or the remarkable lower- and middle-income kids. We could see a reshaping of the college experience. Well,
4: I mean, Scott, is, there, is it possible then that we could get a reshaping of this caste system that you referred to, this idea that your ticket to a better life right now is getting into Harvard or Stanford or one of these schools? There's been a pushback for a while now saying that, you know, real-world experience and maybe circumventing uh, these high-priced schools could be a path forward. Do you not see any way that maybe that sort of path for success could sort of weasel its way in, in, in this environment?
3: That's a nice notion, but until the heads of recruiting for McKinsey, Goldman Sachs, and the World Bank stop, stop mandating that somebody has to have an undergraduate certification from one of these top universities, it's still largely going to be like a, the primary indicator of your trajectory as a young person. So it's, it's really corporations who need to change their mindset around whether or not a college degree from a certain university is a prerequisite uh, for, for a job at that organization. You might see the low-cost universities be okay, like the Cal State system in California. The high-end universities will be fine, but the guys in the middle are like J.C. Penneys and Sears, and that is there's no market for them.
2: So I'm glad you bring up Cal State, for instance. Uh, We know that they're going to an uh, all-online system, at least in the fall. You went to UCLA. You often praise the value of your public school education. What happens to public universities? Can they team up with big tech? How do they survive when they're not getting the kind of state funding that they need?
3: Well, that's exactly right, Scarlett. So the top universities can continue to offer, offer or to get fifty-eight thousand dollars just because of the sheer brand value and certification. The Cal State system probably does okay because they charge seven and nineteen thousand dollars respectively in-state and out-of-state tuition. The University of California probably does fine because their tuition is still about sixteen and I believe thirty-eight thousand dollars for what is an outstanding degree. I think they do just fine. But does Pepperdine survive this? Does the university that still charges forty or fifty thousand dollars? for what is not considered a top-tier certification and you can no longer attend a campus overlooking the Pacific Ocean or go to basketball games, those companies might be caught short, or those universities might be caught shorthanded. I think the University of California comes out of this just fine. But to your point, we need to rethink priorities, and that is unless we expand the number of freshman seats and stop using universities as a means of, of layering more and more debt on U.S. households now greater than credit card debt, Are we in fact bumping up against moral hazard where we have been preying on the hopes and dreams of middle-class families and as a result, have just put too much debt on young people? It's a hard truth we have to face and COVID-19 is putting it front and square in front of us.
2: Then we spoke with the CEO of Porsche Cars North America, Klaus Zellmer, about how the company is adapting to the pandemic, including digital purchases of vehicles. We started by asking Klaus how sales are holding up.
5: April hit us hard. 50% of our dealers were actually closed for sales. Uh, They could do some uh, online uh, sales, of course, and conduct some customer contact. Uh, So April was bad, but you're right. May actually doesn't look too bad for us. Uh, We are on our original uh, sales trend uh, by mid of this month. uh, And hopefully we can, Uh, get to our original budget figure by the end of the month, now that uh, we have only 10%, 12% of our dealers uh, closed down for sales operations.
2: So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your e-commerce sales strategy then. Um, Are people buying new cars or are they buying secondhand cars? And how long do they deliberate for before uh, going through with a purchase?
5: Well, our uh, e-sales strategy, our digital retail strategy uh, actually is just ramping up. It's not so typical to purchase a car, you know, that's in the six digit number uh, area uh, via online possibilities. So we had a pilot going on before COVID-19 with 26 dealers and actually since COVID-19 hit the market, uh, this has been extended to one-third of our dealerships. So over 70 dealers are now reaching out to customers via digital sales possibilities to sell them cars. It is predominantly the used car market um, that typically would then transact uh, on digital sales, on digital, on digital retail channels. Um, but we also see people actually taking uh, the next step in terms of digital purchasing for, uh, for new cars.
2: Hmm. Um, I want to ask you now about electric vehicles. Uh, The Taycan, the first all-EV Porsche, is available later on this year. But we also have a different environment uh, for car purchases overall. The average price of gasoline, for instance, AAA gas prices on average are now below $2 a gallon, $1.89. What does that do? What do you anticipate that will do to demand for EVs?
5: Well, you know, there are many psychological barriers for um, battery electric vehicles, which is range, which is new technology, which might be very complicated when you use it. Uh, uh, And, of course, uh, with us, um, you know, we have to respect customers uh, that initially do not want to engage with the new technology. However, with the Taycan, we actually see something that contradicts all that. Uh, we have a lot more demand than we will ever be able to supply cars this year Um, so uh, we actually have more 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 demand than we will be able to supply Uh, now the the gas prices at the moment of course for the overall demand of battery electric vehicles does not help because some people still see the battery electric vehicle being in terms of the gas price versus electricity costs Uh, A lot more attractive. Now, this is being contradicted. So, yes, you're right. Overall, the market for battery electric vehicles, if the gas price stays where it is right right now in that area, will most probably get a hit by the end of the year or will not soar the way that everybody anticipated that part, that new technology to take off.
4: So Klaus, I mean, there is a lot more competition in this space now with regards to EVs and particularly some of the more premium luxury type of EVs. I'm just curious as to where do you see sort of Porsche fitting in that uh, specifically when you have people like Elon Musk sort of taking jabs, sometimes friendly at your car uh, and some of the buyers of that car, particularly Bill Gates, and some of the competition you're getting uh, from some of the other luxury automakers out there.
5: I think you know what we did is we we did not really uh, attack any of the other battery electric vehicles. matter of fact, we we respect them, uh, especially Tesla, of course, you know preparing the automotive market for the battery vehicle uh, battery electric vehicle market. Uh, we actually looked at our possibilities, at our engineering capabilities, at our experience, and at our innovation spirit, uh, and looked on whether we can build a battery electric vehicle that is worth carrying the Porsche Crest. Be a real sports car that you can t- take to the racetrack, uh, that you can set new records, uh, that lives up to our design philosophy. So it's clearly a Porsche, uh, the, that haptics uh, and personalization possibilities with that car. Uh, are actually in a new league. Uh, and this is what we were striving mm-hmm. for. Uh, and looking at the market and how the market reacts at, at this point of time, um, we found uh, a really good spot in the market where we can see more demand than we have supply.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it you need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance at the hartford we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs the hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more
2: We also got some ETF intelligence from Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Investments in Japan. Jesper is perfectly positioned to discuss the Federal Reserve's move into ETF purchases since the Bank of Japan has been doing just that for a decade. We started by asking Jesper how effective he thought the Fed's new policy would be.
6: Um, look, I mean, first of all, I think that uh, in terms of effectiveness, um, you know, buying ETFs, you know, is a very, very efe- effective, uh, you know, very impactful way to actually, for the central bank, show, um, you know, support for asset markets. And remember, you know, doing the Parts of the um, you know uh, pandemic crisis when you did have these massive amount of bond outflows, you know the Federal Reserve picking on ETFs as a fast and efficient way uh, to show the market that there is liquidity, that it does have confidence in the market. I think was a very very good way to actually do that.
4: Yeah, it's definitely a very good way. And I think the response that you saw in the market, Jesper, uh, definitely seemed to back that up. I guess the concern here is how does the Fed uh, and the BOJ, in your case, how do they then back away from that in an orderly fashion without uh, having, I guess, the opposite effect on markets?
6: No, and and that's exactly the point. And I mean, you know, uh, the Federal Reserve focused on the bond markets. Um, As you are aware, um, the Bank of Japan uh, only uses ETFs for the equity market. And unfortunately, um, it never pulled away when the market was strong. Um, Because, of course, the difference between a bond and an ETF is that with a bond, All you've got to do is just wait around because it rolls off your balance sheet, which is called tapering with an ETF. um, You know, the problem is that you actually do have to go out and actually sell it. And, you know, of course, you know, a headline, uh, Federal Reserve seen selling bond ETFs would not make a good headline unless, and this is the key point, you actually do have the private markets that are ready and strong enough to actually pick up the new supply.
2: Okay, so you're saying that as a result, there's less of a risk of creating a tantrum because you can just let the bonds roll off as opposed to buying ETFs, equity ETFs, where you really consciously have to sell it.
6: Exactly. And that's, you know, if, if you and I go to the Bank of Japan today and say, hello, Bank of Japan, um, you know, here you are buying ETFs, you own, you almost own now the Bank of Japan, as you know, almost owns 10% of the Japanese equity market through those ETFs. And so, you know, when are you going to sell them? They will look at you and say, we will never sell them. Um, you know, so mm. if you've got that sort of confidence there, That's great. But the moment you say, I mean, you know, you can imagine if you get a headline Bank of Japan selling uh, Japan equity ETFs, you know, that would be quite a shock for the market to actually absorb.
4: What about the health of those companies, though, particularly there in Japan? I mean, over here in the U.S., there's this concern here that this uh, support that's being put into the markets by Fed and the fiscal policymakers is essential, I guess, to keep a lot of these companies going, with the exception of a few outliers that maybe had stronger balance sheets. In Japan, though, the, the argument has seems to be that companies there are a little bit healthier, at least they were prior to the COVID-19 crisis, relatively speaking
6: well it's very interesting you know because the criticism that the Bank of Japan faces um, you know is because you own the equity through ETFs effectively you know that's bad for corporate governance because typically ETF holders and certainly the Bank of Japan does not exercise its shareholder rights so in contrast the Federal Reserve by buying the bonds actually does lend the financial support to the companies, but it does not negatively impact corporate governance. So actually the Federal Reserve, in my personal opinion, is doing a better job than the Bank of Japan because Hmm. by buying equity ETF and not exercising your voting rights, that's something that is a bit of an issue here in terms of negative corporate governance here in Japan, while the Federal Reserve doesn't have that problem.
2: Very quickly here, Jasper, BlackRock's LQD has been sucking in assets since the Fed said it would backstop the credit market. Um, The assets touched a record $46.7 billion today. Is there a point at which a single ETF can get too big that it disrupts a central bank's ETF purchase
6: program? Um, Look, I mean, you know, you always have this issue, you know, when is is getting something too big? When is the uh, control and ownership too large there? At the end of the day, look, You know, we are coming out of this crisis. Liquidity in the world's largest bond market, which is the American bond market, is returning very nicely, very smartly, very orderly. And I think, you know, when we look back at this, hopefully in about four or five months, what the Federal Reserve is doing is just a drop in the water. Now it's huge, but it's going to, you know, look like nothing once market liquidity uh, uh, reopens, once America returns to being great.
2: On Thursday, Fed Chairman Jay Powell spoke at a virtual Fed Listens event about how COVID-19 is impacting American communities. We spoke with one of the executives on that panel. Darren Williams is CEO of Southern Bancorp, which is based in Arkansas. The bank is now considering its second round of PPP loan applications from small businesses in the region. Darren is also part of President Trump's Economic Revival Group, representing one of the two small banks on that council. We started by asking Darren whether actions from the Fed and U.S. Treasury were enough to provide stability in his community.
7: Well, I mean, first, thank you for having us uh, today. And I I applaud the effort of the the Fed as well as the administration and Congress to provide this immediate relief to help uh, in wake of this unprecedented pandemic. Uh, And it's it's helping, uh, particularly the Paycheck Protection Program. is putting money in people's pockets so they can handle that day-to-day business. But I would say over the long term, uh, beyond this, we begin to rebuild and reopen America's economy. Uh, I think there's gonna have to be more, uh, more done to ensure that particular communities that we serve in the Arkansas Mississippi Delta that struggled prior to the pandemic, that it not only returns, but actually some of the structural inequalities in the economic system can be addressed and give a chance for people to have full recovery and actually to get ahead
2: so that 's really interesting that perspective that you 're able to bring to uh, the Central Bank and also to the president 's uh, economic revival group as well. Um, what indication are you getting that either the Federal Reserve or the White House is going to try to address that banking that wealth gap that currently exists that uh, really as we know has been shown to result in more deaths for black people? nothing was really it felt like nothing was really done uh, before this, so you know, the pressure is on, I suppose, to to have something to show for it this time around.
7: Well, we hope so. One of the the, um, uh, things that I hope I bring to the president's uh, economic revival group is I continue to uh, bring up issues that impact uh, low wealth communities, impact rural communities, communities of color, communities that have have been um, often disenfranchised or left behind. Uh, And I'm pleased that in the last, in round two, of the paycheck protection program, Both Congress and the administration agreed upon a carve-out of of $30 billion that actually went to CDFIs, minority depository institutions, as well as small community banks to ensure that those uh, paycheck protection resources reached some of the smallest of small business in these distressed communities. And that was a good start. In fact, that money uh, was exhausted in one and a half days. So you can see the demand for that and the need for it. Uh, I hope that uh, as Congress continues to think about ways Uh, to reopen and stimulate the economy, that they will continue to focus on those communities that have been uh, historically left behind.
4: And, and doing that, Darren, I mean, we talk about small businesses and really with a focus on the small here, that first round of that Paycheck Protection Program, at least nationally, seemed to show some disparities in how that money was being distributed to businesses that maybe sort of uh, were sort of stretching the idea of what constitutes a small business. In that second round, it appeared that we started to see much more of that money go to what we would traditionally think of small business. Can you give us an idea of what that breakdown was?
7: Well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a breakdown of, 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 of what we saw, Romaine. Um, I will tell you that and one of the reasons why it's so important that small community banks and CDFIs and MDIs always have access to the money. There was more access in round two than round one. But we made our first paycheck protection loan on April 3rd, the day the program opened. We actually made the loan and funded it that same day. That was when many larger banks weren't sure if they were going to actually do the program, couldn't figure out the rules of the program, and, and were not access, uh, providing access to the program for their for folks who were not their customers. From day one, we provided access to customers and non-customers. In round one, we did see a slightly larger business, but I would say of the of the 553 loans that we did in round one, 336 of those loans went to business that employed 10 or less people with an average loan size of only 32,000. Now in round two, it's gotten smaller. I would say the last 300 loans uh, that we've done uh, in round two, of the 673 loans we've done in round two, the last 300 probably have had an average size of about $10,000 uh, and and probably employed you know two or three people in uh, average employment, employment size. So uh, it, we're seeing more and more sole proprietors, more and more independent contractors getting access to those resources. But I think that what that shows there's a real need for mission-focused banks, for CDFIs, for minority depository institutions, and for small community banks that are proximate with these small businesses to make sure they have access to these dollars so they can make sure their small businesses have access.
2: Darren, at the same time, uh, we know that banks such as yours um, and across the nation have been uh, offering uh, borrowers forbearance programs. And a lot of these forbearance programs were ro- were rolled out in March and will hit the 90-day mark soon and expire. Is that the case at your bank? and if so, what is the next step for you? How do you go about deciding what to do? Do you keep letting people put off their payments? Do you start charging them interest? Do you push them out of the program if it appears that they don't need to delay any further?
7: Right. So, we're going to do all that we can uh, to make sure that we support our small business and our consumer customers. You're right. So, uh, when this pandemic hit and we recognized that people were going to struggle, we automatically provided uh, 90-day payment relief for all of our consumer borrowers across the board, without regard to any fees. No fees at all for that, for that for that forgiveness. And then, if our commercial borrowers, on a case-by-case basis, uh, then we're making decisions on being on providing some form of payment relief, whether that's a complete deferral of payments or interest-only payments. Uh, and we've done that. And I will say, so far, about 150 million, or about 15% of our portfolio, has taken advantage of that. I'm not sure that everyone necessarily needed that. But in this time, people are nervous, they're, they're frightened, and they want to conserve cash. So they've taken advantage of that. We will continue to look at that. We want to do all we can to make sure that the economy recovers. And probably going to be much more sector-based, so we have a fair amount yeah. of hospitality uh, in our portfolio. Uh, you know, people are not yet uh, back going to hotels. We'll probably give them some additional form of relief. It's important that they survive. Uh, if they don't make it, then there's no need for us to be there in those communities. So we, we will work with our borrowers.
4: So I'm curious about with regards to the recovery, Darren, and some of the regional differences. I mean, here in New York, the lockdown was pretty severe where I sit. Um, I know in some of the southern states, the lockdowns were a little bit different. They were a little bit shorter. But I'm wondering, what was sort of the net effect on local businesses there? And are they going to be able to come back relatively quickly, that proverbial V-shaped recovery, once everything is open and and fully, uh, everyone's able to fully participate in the economy?
7: Yeah, Romain, it really all depends on how quickly consumer confidence comes back. Uh, and, and people are still nervous. They're still frightened. While we didn't have the complete shutdown that like you all had in New York, um, people did shut down. Businesses shut down. You saw business uh, really have a traumatic, almost a complete drop in revenue, uh, you know, particularly in the hospitality industry. You know, you're, you're talking about hotels now that are operating on you know, less than 20 percent occupancy. That just does that math. This doesn't work for them to be able to pay their bills, uh, and so it's all about consumer confidence. The as longer as this goes on, the harder this is going to be uh, for our, our our businesses to make it back. While we hope for this V-shaped recovery, until we really have the confidence that people are safe, I don't think we'll I don't think right. we'll see the economy reopen really quickly.
2: That does it for this episode of what You Missed This Week? If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Closed show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: Your industry is unique.